Welcome once again, everybody, to After Further Review with Mark Ferrer and John Pelkey. As you can see, if you're watching, our producer Jeff Taylor with us, as always, and our good friend, former college quarterback, Coast Guard Academy assistant coach Derek Abbott joins us today because we're going to talk all about football. Maybe a little baseball later on as well, mainly NFL, some college stuff going on. Um, but before we do anything, I'm going to let everyone know this. This I am, because Mark does this to me all the time, he springs things on me during the show so that I have no say about it, or if I overreact, I show my ass. So I'm going to let everybody know right now, as, as mentioned previously in the show, I'm going to be uh, the public address announcer for to- uh, Toronto Raptors basketball while they play in Tampa. Uh, and I just found out that I will have to have two COVID tests a week prior to games, and I will have to do those in Tampa. So the attractiveness of the job dropped just a little bit for me. But I am letting everybody know that times of our shows over the next few months eh, may vary here and there because they have testing times, and I have to drive all the way over to Tampa. And if you're listening and you've never had to drive I-4 to Tampa and back, Feel sorry for me. Feel sorry for me. All right. It's really not that bad, John. Come on. Nah, it'll be it'll be all right. But I did find out you have to have two you're, negative you're the tests. You're the voice of the Toronto Raptors, for crying out loud. Come I'm on. not the voice of the Toronto Raptors. You have two negative tests within 72 hours before the game. So, And then I'll be tested game days as well. I mean, honestly, you know, we're going to know. know. Your, life, your life is so hard. <laughs> we're going to know. We're going to know if I've been exposed to it. If I went out to Dexter's last night and unmasked with a thousand people. If you're a restaurant, people do that. You probably shouldn't put that on your website. Just uh, just a little common sense stuff. All right. We're going to get all of this. That's enough. Got Derek Abbott with us. We do not want to waste any time. We're going to be talking about a lot of stuff. And I want to start here, Derek. Your, um, your Pittsburgh roots. Your dad is from Pittsburgh. He played college football in the Pittsburgh area. He's a Pittsburgh guy. As much as anybody who grew up in Central Florida can be. And I have to ask this question because it's the question everybody's asking. Um I don't put a lot of stock into the loss the other night. We talked about that. Washington has an improving defense. Their offense had gotten better. Pittsburgh had gone through all of that rigmarole with the Ravens game canceled up. They've lost some people as well. Um, But I think a legitimate question is, are they a true Super Bowl contender with what appears to be a terrible inability to run the football? I think, yes, they are. Uh, Okay. Because a lot of people I, are saying they're just not. I do, I do, and, and I think that they, I think that they hit a little bit of a roadblock the last couple of weeks with with off schedules, um, day, games on odd days, um, and then injuries starting to pile up. People starting on the COVID list and not also not having a true bye week. Um, I thought the game against Washington they looked tired at times. They did. Um, I think that's also maybe explains a little bit of the drops as well. It's just. Maybe a focus thing, not having enough rest. Because when you when you were playing on odd days, um, this is something that maybe not everybody always knows. But when you play on odd days, your schedule essentially changes. So when your game is on a Wednesday, essentially Tuesday is a Saturday, Monday is a Friday, um, and then so on and so forth. So your schedule is all jacked up essentially, and especially when you are the day before a game on the Thursday night game. You're already in meetings. You're already ready to play the Thursday game. Uh, you've had your walkthrough. 
well, now Thursday they cancel the game, and now it's kind of like, okay, now what do we do? Do we mm-hmm. go back to a drawing board? Do we go practice? How do we how do we manage this? So it was a lot of stuff on the fly um, that it's a constant adversity that they've had to deal with. So I think that going forward, uh, they might not finish 15 and one, 14 and two. They might lose a couple down the stretch, but I wouldn't put anything into it. I think that they're just trying to get to the postseason right now, uh, maybe rest some guys and hopefully be healthy going into the into the postseason because there's no home field advantage this year. Uh, no, yeah, and uh, yeah, I, I agree with you. I just think it's interesting how many people have come out to say. With that inability to run the football, they're going to find themselves in trouble. Uh, I, I, I agree. All right. Now, the, they've got a big task ahead of them um, because this week they've got the Buffalo Bills who are playing very, very well. And we, Mark, you both you and I, we, we took a wait and see attitude on the Bills. We thought they were a little bit of a flash in the pan last year. Look at this football game, Derek, because – if if you're Buffalo, in my mind, you'd prefer to not get Pittsburgh coming off of a loss because that's going to refocus them. But um, Buffalo's playing awfully well. And Josh Allen is absolute and utter proof that you can improve your accuracy from the pocket as a quarterback. And he is dangerous, particularly rolling to his right, but outside of the pocket. How do you see this game? Because this to me, it's a Herculean task for a Pittsburgh team trying to stay on track, which just you know, a yeah. team with one loss, I'm saying that about. But well, – the, the matchup is certainly the Buffalo offense versus the Pittsburgh defense and how the Steelers defense is going to be able to manufacture pressure with a bunch of injuries. Um, obviously, you no know, Devin Bush from earlier in the year, his backup Robert Spillane goes down with a knee injury that he's supposed to come back later in the year. Vince Williams is now on the COVID reserve list. Uh, Steven Nelson and Joe Hayden um, were injured in the Redskins game as well. No Bud Dupree. Redskins. Washington football team put it in the jar. Uh, we all do it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> No Bud Dupree as well. So are they also, are they able to manufacture pressure in different ways? Um, they had Edmonds in the box a little bit, a little more often. He's their strong safety. Um, more of a one high look with, with Minka Fitzpatrick. Uh, Buffalo does thrive off of man coverage. A lot of their schemes uh, time up and, and relate well to defenses that are going to run man coverage. I think that that's where Allen um plays his best football so maybe working more into a cover three with a single high safety and then you have your two corners that are essentially going to drop into deep thirds having Edmonds in the box again like I said to to help with the run game um, he's more of an in-the-box safety and then obviously not having the linebackers really really hurts so Avery Williams that they uh, acquired from the Jets a couple weeks ago will have to play uh, a lot I don't really know who else they have at linebacker um, because they're they're getting pretty thin um, and then obviously um, Mike Hilton as well at, at the, the cornerback position. He's really a slot nickel that he's been really, really playing really, really well this year. And he has the last couple of years blitzing off the slot, fitting in the runs and um, taking on blocks as well. And then the, like you said, you know, Allen's, Allen's accuracy has greatly improved um, over the last three years. There's, there's certainly been a, a massive progressive uh, or progression in his throwing, even his mechanics is cleaner. Um, his footwork isn't always the best, but I think that that's just part of his game. Well, and we've talked about this. We've talked about how traditionally, really, the third year for a quarterback is when they really start coming of age. And then they have, you know, if they're lucky, they have another 10 years of of improving, you know, slowly but surely even on that. Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, 
then Buffalo is going to be a force for a long time. I wanted to ask you, John referenced this as well. When, when Allen goes to his right, when he's running to his right, he's not only extending the play, but he throws so well going to his right, and he's a pretty good runner. You would think it was so odd for the 49ers who, you know, the week before they were hailing Robert Sala as a genius who was going to go to Detroit tomorrow, uh, and they could not adjust to him. Uh, they, they couldn't do anything to prevent him from going right. Now, now, first of all, why is that? And second of all, do the Steelers have defensive schemes to keep him in the pocket? Because when he's just in the pocket, he's less effective, I think. Yeah. Well, I, I think the difference between the, the Rams game and the Niners game, and the Bills game, excuse me, was Jared Goff is not great at making second reaction plays. He's not really a run threat, and then when he gets outside of the pocket, you don't see him make those Allen Mahomes-like throws down the field. Also, the Bills receivers do a fantastic job of working the second play. So this is made famous a lot by Aaron Rodgers back in the 2000s or late 2000s where you have a play, Rodgers breaks the pocket, now you have a second play that you practice in practice that guy goes high, works back. You have another guy that goes low and medium and a guy that comes back to the ball. So those things are practice as well. I don't know that, you know, that's in the repertoire of the Rams. Um, in terms of the Steelers being able to stop them, I think obviously it's going to be Highsmith and Watt that are going to have to try and collapse that pocket and not let him get outside and then really just kind of condense it and, and collapse the pocket with, with um, Tewitt and, and Cam Hayward as well. And then whether they're able to, like I said, manufacture pressure in other ways with just not maybe sending only four, but maybe sending five or six guys and, and try and get Allen off of a spot um, and, and try and get him down as quick as they can before he can make those second reaction plays. Yeah, I tell you, 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 you brought up the Pittsburgh linebackers because coming into this season, I think a lot of people looked at that unit as one of the best in the NFL, and they've just been so decimated. And boy, linebacker play seemingly to me, knowing what I do, linebacker play against Buffalo and Josh Allen is uh, is a major, major need. Um, well, let's flip it around a little bit because, you know, there's, as, as I mentioned, a lot of talk about the, the Pittsburgh offense being largely one-dimensional. It's not really a, a, a deep threat offense as much as it used to be with Ben. It's a quick pass and a very efficient and good quick pass. Again, I'm throwing out the Washington game for a lot of reasons, but uh, how does the Bills match up with that? What can they do um, – to slow that down and force Pittsburgh to try to do something different? Well, I think that that, that quick passing game can always get disrupted by man coverage as well, um, whether you're able to jam receivers off the line, but it's also a double-edged sword because if you don't jam those receivers off the line and they get a free release or they get a good release, the play could hit big. Um, they are not driving the ball down the field as much as they used to on the deep dig routes, and, and that's something that I've discussed with a couple people of – is Ben being having the ability to make that deep 20-yard dig route or the deep comeback throw? Because it doesn't seem like he always has the juice that he used to. Now, mm -hmm. ben, ben has never been a straight power thrower, the ones that you would think that he's going to throw it between four people. He's an accurate thrower. They are running a little bit more of some RPO stuff, but they are really substituting the run game for a lot of these quick little dink-and-dunk pass games where it's, you know, 
motion clay pull in throw them a quick now screen and then they're blocking in front of them for three or four yards and it almost feels like one of these drops that they've they've continually had over the last couple of weeks is almost like a drive killer it almost feels like it's a penalty now yep um with, with ebron and, and especially deontay johnson and like i said earlier i think this is a little bit more of a of a tired football team that now that they have a full week's rest and they're a little bit rejuvenated, they get Marquise Pouncey back, um, who is a major, major factor on their offensive line. He kind of steers the ship up front and has a great relationship with Ben. And then obviously um, James Conner as well, who I believe was having a really, really good year at the beginning of the year. They were running the ball really, mm-hmm. really well. I think he was averaging around four yards a carry. Um, if they do want to get to the run game, they obviously do still have Derek Watt, who they're paying $4 million to run down on special teams. So you to, to implement him in the run game as well, um, it could be something that you see. And then they've kind of – remember we talked about earlier in the year of them using a little bit more of the jet motion and the pre-snap motion stuff. And you can see that they've kind of gotten away from it a little bit too. Like they've really abandoned that end game. So you might be able to see them – Bring that back a little bit, especially with Conte. You might see more of a game plan from week one, two, and three. And yeah, Lenny pointing out, Mark, uh, Steelers, three games in 12 days. So to Derek's point about being tired, that team, the team's been through it. They have, and I think that's probably a large reason why, you know, they lost the game. They were up 14 nothing, and I think it was, what, not even, what, midway through the second quarter, they were up 14 nothing. It looked like it was going to be a rout. And uh, watched the Washington football team hung in there and hung in there. And I, I think I think you're right. You know, when you have a running game, you can keep that lead. You can you can sit on that lead. Even if you have a game like you're talking about, the 1981 uh, 49ers is a good example. They didn't have a running game, but their short passing game essentially took the place of it their running game. game. And yeah. and that's what the that's what the Steelers have done. So so let me ask you this, just in terms of schemes and defensive adjustments in terms of what the Washington football team did. Take take for now, they don't have James Conner. Him coming back is going to be huge, in my opinion. They've played 12, they played 12 games in three days. No, three games <laughs> in 12 games. Take that out. Take the tired factor, the focus. Was there something Washington did that other teams can pick up on in terms of, listen, we're going to let – we're going to let – we're, we're going to dare the Pittsburgh Steelers to beat us on the ground because we're going to take away that short game and we're going to see what happens. Is there something along those lines, or do you think it really boils down to being tired and being hurt? Well, I think it's exactly what you just said, is that you're daring them to beat you with a run game. They're basically saying we're going to give you a light box, you're not going to be able to stop it, and we're just going to basically run fit everything that you throw at us and we're going to shut down your short passing game. I think that's what Washington did. Um they also got hands up a lot, too. Um, their defensive line caused a lot of issues for Ben. Closed windows, especially in the short passing game. Really, it's almost like a, a defense where you're just keeping everything in front of you. And, yeah, we'll give you four or five yards. That's fine. But we're not going to let you beat over the top. Something similar that the Giants did to Seattle um, mm. and, and took away took away the deep passing game as well. So, a lot, I think a little bit is going to be like, yeah, we'll give you the short three, four yards. But it's a bend don't break style of defense yeah and as we talked about uh washington has the personnel with four people to put that kind of pressure on Mm -hmm. your defensive line plays very very well all right let's jump to another interesting game uh kansas city everybody's favorite to win it all um and those pesky miami dolphins um it's a pretty fun matchup 
Miami now is a fun matchup no matter what. You, in, in any situation, the Dolphins have become a lot, a, a lot of fun. Mark, go ahead. Well, is this one of those games, Derek, where <laughs> afterwards, because everyone is so reactionary in the National Football League, I mean, it's like, you know, you go from an 11-0 team to, I don't know if they're going to do trouble. very well in the playoffs because they can't run. Uh, you know, it's so overreactionary. If the Chiefs, which they could do, sort of shut down the Dolphins and, and beat them by double digits or more, are we going to hear people on Monday say, well, that they exposed the Dolphins. The <laughs> Dolphins were a, a very lucky eight and four. That was a very fragile eight and four. They exposed them. Or are we going to look at the Dolphins after this game and saying, you know, this is a team that is truly on the come and they are inches away from being right there. Well, a couple of things. First is that it's great that on the film there is no social media, there is no Twitter feedback. Um, it's just it's just film. It's just twenty two guys running on a field. Um, second, I think that this is a team that is on the come up. They are playing outstanding defensively. Um, a lot of New England type of schemes. Um, I don't think that playing the Chiefs and being blown out or or getting beat by double digits is being quote unquote exposed. I think that's just being beat by the Chiefs. Um, but Miami on the defensive side is playing extremely well. They play, you'll probably see in this game, more man coverage than any game this year. The Chiefs and the Dolphins are both number one and number two in man defenses. So Miami likes to play a ton of cover one with a single high safety, and they man up and press you all the way across the board. They do some interesting stuff in the front where they'll have uh, a guy straight over the nose and two guys on the inside shade of the guard. Um, so it really clogs up your B gaps. It's almost like similar to the, uh, the old bear front, uh, from the 1980s. It's a little bit different though. Um, they'll do some other things where they'll cover the guards with defensive linemen and then put a linebacker over the center. And it really forces the offensive line to make what we call a five Oh call or Hawaii call or whatever you want to call it. Um, you ever hear it on TV where you go, Hey, five Oh, five Oh, Hawaii. That means our five linemen are blocking their five guys. Um, a lot of the issues with that, though, is that they'll send sim pressure, which is essentially it looks like they're bringing five, six guys. But they bring only four and it's from different areas and it kind of screws your offensive lines rules. I'm a line coach. I absolutely hate that because um, <laughs> it's a nightmare to defend. Um in the back end for Kansas City, uh, or excuse me, for Miami, they're going to have to deal with a lot of Tyreek Hill, Nicole Hardman, and Travis Kelsey. So do you want to still play man coverage against that? Um, it's like I said, it's a double-edged sword. Um, if you're able to disrupt them and, and play one-on-one -on -one and you got the guys to do it, great. Um, if you don't, you're going to be in a, in a long day. Um, if you play zone coverage, you're going to see a little bit more of Kansas City's RPO stuff. Uh, get the get the run game a little bit going, and then they just pick on one defender and hit Tyree Kill for a slant over the middle um, or something similar to that. Uh, for Miami, uh, they're on the, on, the, on, the, yeah, on the offensive side, last week you saw a lot of RPO stuff, a lot of quick game stuff for Tua. Some of the stuff that we discussed that they would probably do where the reads are defined for him. He missed a couple throws in that game. Early in the game, Cincinnati did play a cover one. Um, they ran a smash concept out of a three-by-one bunch set. Um, he ended up throwing a go-route to the tight end, Gusecki, that was um, incomplete. But he had the corner route beat wide open for a touchdown, and he just missed it. So he's still learning and, and at a pace where the game is going to come to him eventually. 
Um, he can play. He can make plays out of structure, but certainly not to the degree of a Kyler Murray or a Russell Wilson. Uh, but it is again, is that Kansas City defense going to be able to get to him before he can get the ball out? Because this is a quick game um, with a lot of like the RPO stuff, and Kansas City is going to bring a ton of pressure with a lot of man coverage because that's what Steve Spagnuolo does. It's it's it just Kansas City just presents. I they mean, seem, you know, they seem very knowing scary, the little, yeah. little that I do, I'm listening to Derek and I'm thinking, all right, well, obviously you double Travis Kelsey, right? Okay, mm-hmm. well, yeah, all right. Well, here's the rest of what you have to deal with. It's just it it just seems uh, improbable. Uh, it, what really seems improbable is that Miami can get into a shootout with Kansas City. I don't think there's there any chance they could do that um, at all. Um, I do want to ask you, and I know we're going to get to Mark. I'll let you jump in here in a second and get to a lot of other things. But I do have to ask you about uh, about the Monday night game for a minute, uh, Baltimore and Cleveland, because Cleveland is now the sexy, sexy team. Um, and Baltimore's reeling a little bit. I don't think Baltimore's as good as we thought they would be. Um, but I think maybe we've overreacted to them as well. Um, from what you've seen from Cleveland, and I don't know how much Cleveland you've watched, but uh, what is your assessment right now of Baker Mayfield? Because he is, a, you know, he's a love or hate guy for most people, and it seems as though perhaps they've just sort of worked out what works best to Baker's uh, skill set that which is something I think it took them a while to figure out. Mm-hmm. But um, give me your idea of where you think Cleveland is offensively. And if you think Cleveland has a championship caliber offense. I think that that, that offense is, is obviously very good and it works within the scheme and what, when, when everything is operating at a, at a high level, similar to like what the Rams are, and what the Vikings are, and when that offense is working at a high level and working together, um, they're a very, very difficult offense to beat, especially with their run game. Everything is relying on that double barrel attack with Nick Chubb and um, and Kareem Hunt. Then it's all play action, boot stuff to move the pocket for Baker. Um, and it, this pains me to say this, but there is a reason why they're doing this, and it's because the height limitations of Baker <laughs> of a short quarterback. Um, when you are changing the windows constantly in a drop back game, it does cause issues because that's where short quarterbacks, that's where you have to throw up. You're never going to throw over people you throw through them. So when he's just a straight drop back passer and everybody in the hot take it right now is, well, Baker could beat you with his heart Baker. But a lot of that had to do one touchdown passes to a tackle. The other one for two guys that were pretty wide, pretty open for NFL standards. Um, I think he works extremely well, like I said, within within the construct of their offense with the boot game, basically creating things and creating routes and concepts that are easy for him and defined for him to read, and he's not having to play the ball. So let me ask you this, uh, Derek, going back to what you were talking about with, um, with uh, being an offensive line coach and being highly frustrated with some of those uh, rush schemes that uh, Miami can throw at you. It's what we used to say back in the day when the two minute offense would come on the field and it would be so successful <laughs> and everyone would say, why don't they do that all the time? time? Go five yeah. wide 24 <laughs> seven. And, and I mean, a lot of that has come into play though. And, and, and it's certainly being used a lot more than it, than it was back in the day. But I'm asking you about that kind of zone blitzing for lack of a better phrase uh, where you, you, you looks like there's five coming, there's actually four coming, but they're coming from different angles and it's a nightmare to defend in your, in your point. Why isn't that, applied 
uh, I don't know, more consistently throughout the game? Is it like one of is it like doing a double reverse? You can only do these kinds of things two or three times before yeah. people catch on. Yeah, why don't they use it more? Well, one, you gotta you gotta have the personnel to do it. Um, everybody says, oh, well, we could do this, we could do that, but do you have the guys to do it? The other team to watch that does it a ton is the Rams. Um, you saw it last night. Mm-hmm. They send pressure from everywhere, and then when you have a guy like Aaron Donald and, and Brockers up front, you can do those kinds of things because the offensive line is terrified of Aaron Donald, as what I, as what I be. <laughs> um, so one, you got to have the guys to do it, and does it work in your scheme? Because if it doesn't work in your scheme, then it's going to look out of place, and people are going to pick up on what you're doing. So it's very similar to like a lot of like the jet motion stuff, the play action, the boot and stuff, you almost have to major in it and you have to do it so consistently that it all always looks the same. If you don't, it looks out of place and people are able to pick up on it or it, it looks sloppy. Talking to Derek Abbott, former Robert Morris quarterback, a offensive line coach at the Coast Guard Academy. We're talking some offensive line. Yeah, you you bring up a really, really good point. And, you know, we have a lot of people who listen and people who host this show who don't really know much. Let's just be honest. I mean, you've worked with us. Um, But, you know, Mark brings up that interesting thing about, uh, you know, that uh, zone blitz stuff. Uh, and, And you brought up the thing that years ago I learned where, yeah, not everybody has defensive ends that can cover in the flat. Right. And, no, you know, not everybody has linebackers that are physical enough to be, you know, to take on all pro guards and, and, and big guys. Um, is I just want to ask you as a coach, because we, we argue this all the time. It's why I think Joe Gibbs is the greatest coach in the history of the NFL. Um, is it more important to find a scheme to work or is it more important to learn how to work with the personnel you have? With no doubt, it's learn with the personnel that you have. Then why don't more coaches learn that? <laughs> but at the same time, Derek, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, but at the same time, you get a guy like Bill Walsh, and they draft players for a certain system, mm-hmm. and that works gangbusters as well. Yeah. And, and both, listen, both work. Um, me personally, I like to have the flexibility of morphing it. Again, this is going to sound completely biased, but you morph your offense around what your quarterback can do, what he can and can't do. You're not going to throw the ball 50 times a game with a kid single-wing quarterback. You're just not going to do it. That would make no sense. So it's up to the coach, and that's why you're a coach, to figure out what is the best way I could put my team in a position to succeed. What is the best way that our offensive linemen can get to the guys that we want them to get to and create the angles that we want for them? So if we have a small offensive line, there's no why would we try and create a bunch of single blocks? Because we're going to lose those every time. We want to create double team blocks. We want to create different angles for our running back to see and for our offensive linemen to make easier blocks. If you have a bunch of receivers that struggle in press coverage, don't put them out there by themselves in, in a where they are in like a press situation, man, bring them in tight, put them in a condensed split, make them spray release with meaning you're going to start here and you're going to work out. That really makes it difficult for a defense to come up and press you because now you could start running rub routes and you get guys naturally open. So I think that for me personally, um, and this is coming from, this it, it, has to happen every week. Um, this is coming from the Keith Abbott coaching tree of, of, don't beat your head into a wall trying to run one thing because you saw it in a video game or you saw it on TV. Run what you run and run what your guys know and they can execute to a high level and play fast. 
And, you know, it also needs to be pointed out, Mark, that Bill Walsh developed the uh, West Coast offense because he had to adapt to the personnel he had when Craig, Greg Cook, who's a name nobody remembers, was this great quarterback for the Bengals. Uh, yeah, he was this great quarterback. And Bill Walsh was the offensive coordinator. And he went down. They get a guy named Virgil Carter, mm-hmm. who essentially would fit offenses more today because he's more of an athletic guy than a passer. And then you also have to have, and this is, I think this is a point that needs to be made, uh, Derek, is that Mark makes a point. Yeah, they drafted and brought in a lot of guys who fit their system. Yeah. There are a lot of front offices that really struggle finding the right guys to fit. So I will still argue, if it, I'll make it 51-49 if it will make Mark happy, though uh, I'm sure he'll still want to argue this, that I would rather have a coach who uh, is a little more flexible I, I, because I think we, we're just littered with uh, the Matt Patricia my way or the highway guys, and I just – I don't see that. Well, and, and look at Bruce Arians. I think there's a perfect example right now. He's trying still seemingly to put Tom Brady into his system as opposed to adjusting his system to Tom Brady. It seems like that's what's happened in a couple of their losses, at least. And can I, um, I want to ask, can I ask maybe a question just, about that? Maybe. Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry, Mark. We got a little delay here, and I'm sorry. It's making it a little difficult for me. But to that point, one of the big issues in Tampa is that Tom Brady likes a lot of pre-snap motion. That certainly you're a quarterback. I would assume that makes it a little bit easier to read what the defense is 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 playing. If you get pre, you can see if they're in man. Certainly, there are disguises and things that they can do. But pre-snap motion puts the defense back on their heels, makes them have to think a little bit, and also opens that up. What would be the argument against it? Because Bruce Arians is not a fan of pre-snap motion. And it just seems, that just seems odd to me. He's a very successful coach. He's had a lot of success. But what would, can you make an argument for why he wouldn't morph into at least some of that for Tom? So I think that that's a little bit of the old school, not I want to say old school, say about 10 years ago where there was not a lot of pre-snap motion. And I think a lot of that had to do with that quarterbacks like a static picture. They like to know exactly what they're looking at. They like to know what safeties are doing, what the corners are doing. When you preset, when you jet motion, when you change the balance of your offense going from a two by two set to a three by one set, it gives a defense and a different auto check. So what they're, Coverage might be versus two by two, 11 personnel. You know what it is from jump. You know what you're seeing right now. When they motion to a three by one set, okay, now that may, that changes the defense, how they're going to play you. If you don't know that, it's, it's extremely difficult because now it's like, okay, now I'm just guessing what they're getting into. Um, you see a little bit of that with Ben too, that they don't, remember we talked about that mm-hmm. weeks ago, that they did not run a lot of pre-snap motion when they threw the ball. A lot of that, I think, had been Bruce Arians and did not have a lot of that at the time either. A lot of that has to do with getting a static picture, knowing what you are getting and just working with it. When you get jet motion, you're you're trying to influence somebody. You're trying to get an answer. You're trying to an answer to one of your questions. How are they going to adjust to this? So you see that a lot in early in the game. So you see a lot of different shifts and motions and trades and stuff like that. All right, what is their check here? What is their check there? So I I think that that's kind of the argument. Mm. It would seem to me that the, you know, for a guy who's as advanced in the game as Tom Brady is, perhaps the greatest of all time, that mm-hmm. y- you'd probably listen there. If he's saying this gives him a better uh, opportunity, I just I just think it's it's interesting and and yeah. it, we wonder if that will mark if that is a good marriage. Because right now well, it seems to be a decent marriage, but maybe not as good as it needs to be to be a championship marriage. 
possibly not. And it is the first year of a, you know, you have to kind of get used to each other. But uh, yeah, there have been games where, you know, it's very, it's very common knowledge, I think, among most football people that Tom Brady likes to start the game with some, some short, high percentage passes, get into the rhythm, you know, and feel and feel that rhythm, get the ball out of his hands quickly. And, you know, Bruce Arians in a couple of games has started with these deep balls off the bat. <laughs> And yep. immediately, you know, he's not in any sort of rhythm. There may be a pick involved at this point in time. Anyway, it just is, it seems odd. But again, it might just be them getting used to each other, or it might just be Bruce Arians is an over- overrated hack. <laughs> I, I think I think that that's finding, like we talked about, the the perfect marriage between what your players do well, what you like to do well, and there needs to be a, you know, a compromise in the two in, in your offense yeah. too. So you obviously do what you like to do. And then what is what? What do our players do well? Um, so you see, right now, like what we talked about that earlier with Josh Allen. So you're seeing a marriage of what he does well, what their offense likes to try and accomplish, and they're doing it both pretty well. And they have some pretty key concepts that they like to stick to, um, that that they really thrive off of. And they have the personnel to do it right now, uh, to your point earlier. And, John, if you don't mind, it would be a great time right now to sort of break down that Buffalo offense and how impressive, literally impressive it looks. Yes, they have the personnel. Yes, Josh Allen is maturing beautifully and progressing Mm -hmm. nicely. But it's almost as if there's these offensive schemes from the Buffalo, Mm -hmm. from, you know, Buffalo's offensive uh, mindset and coordinators that have been sort of a the best kept secret in the National Football League thus far. It's we've at least in my point of view, it's not as if they've been this high powered offense that's just ready to just take over because of these schemes that just confuse the hell out of the defense. Yep, and you're absolutely right. They actually do a lot of, uh, ironically, a lot of the stuff that New England did a couple of years ago with some crossers and some dig routes and some motions and some different stuff like that, play action. Um, so it's kind of it's kind of funny to see that now the the team that's running all of the New England schemes are is Buffalo. <laughs> all right, it's working well. So, yeah, yeah. Go, go ahead, ahead Joe. No, go ahead. Let lead Derek in. We got some. Uh, I believe we have some video that we're going to look at. We do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, break it down for us. Tell us how how they are working. How it's working so well. We're looking right now at the Niners and the Bills. Go ahead, Derek. Okay, so I'm going to try to explain this as well as I can for the podcast audience as well so if you could go back and you could pause it from the beginning for me um i'll try to explain what's going on here so right now buffalo is in a 12 personnel meaning they have two tight ends in the game they are both aligned to the right side then you have um Diggs and, and gabriel davis to the left um san francisco is in a too high look uh it is a cover four look um meaning that each safety has a quarter and the corners also have their own quarter as well. If you could roll it a little bit, they're under center. They're going to motion the tight end to the field. So now it becomes a three-by-one or one-by-three set, whatever you want to call it. Um, And now what we talked about where it changes the um, call for the defense, right? So now what's going to happen is it becomes a three-by-one set. San Francisco is going to still play a cover-four look. But what's going to happen now is the backside safety is now going to cross-read what we call to the number three receiver or the first inside threat that comes back to him. So we're going to have basically three for three. On the backside, you have Richard Sherman backside on the tight end here. Now, 
I got ripped to shreds on Twitter for this on QB <laughs> school, which was ridiculous. So the tight end is actually going to leak and, and wide open because Richard Sherman ends up blitzing. The reason being is because Richard Sherman sees the tight end engage on the defensive end and then releases late, or it's a bust. It's either one of the two. Richard Sherman ends up blitzing. The backside safety completely dismisses it because he is supposed to be man on man coverage on the tight end. So it's a bust or he blitzes, just doesn't see it. It just doesn't work out well, but let's work to the front side here. So the front side is a, what we call a dagger concept. You have a vertical route, a go route by the inside receiver. The outside receiver is going to run a 20 yard dig route. I believe it was 20 yards. So he's going to clear it out. Josh Allen pre-snap completely dismisses the end because he doesn't like the match of, uh, I believe it's Lee Smith on Richard Sherman. Just not a good look. So what he's going to do is he's going to run play action and work to the field. He's going to get his eyes to the safety. He sees the safety back. He is able to put the ball, drop the ball just over Fred Warner's head, which is an extremely impressive throw. And this really kind of goes to his accuracy, really, really improving and just throwing this ball really in the bucket. It's really, really impressive. Mm. Uh, you don't really see this. There's only about four human beings on the planet that are making this throw, but drops it right over Fred Warner's head, basically hands it to Gabriel Davis. Um, and this is, like I said, their dagger concept. That is a cover four beater. The backside safety does not get over there. Um, and he is able to fit that into that window. It's not really I, a window. He just throws it over the guy's head. It's a hell that's of a throw. crazy. Yeah, it's not really a window at all. Yeah, it, but, this, but this, is a, this is a concept that they come to a lot on key down situations. They've done it uh, a couple times. They did three or 13 or something like that, that this is something that they really, really like. Josh Allen really feels comfortable with it. Can I ask you, I want to ask you the, the question about Allen. And I mean, we may be covering some ground that we covered before, but I just want to see, because in, in watching that film um, and you can see how that develops and that's really interesting, but, you know, um, guys have to come off their primary receiver on any number of occasions. How to, to you, what you're seeing, how good is he, he at checking down at this point? And can, how much better can he get? Because most quarterbacks will tell you, you know, by the time you're about six, seven years in the league and you finally now are comfortable with all of your checkdowns. And to me, I'm looking at he's got about five different choices he can make at some point in that, depending on how it develops. How good has he gotten at that part of the game? Uh, he's got better. He's still missing a little bit. Okay. Um, we do have another clip of the same concept where he does miss a running back wide open in the field, but it has less to do with. Allen not going through his progression the right way and more of a defense just busting and him not ever just getting to that progression. So it's not okay. necessarily Allen's fault. It's just it doesn't come within the progression of what he's reading. Right, because so, a lot of young quarterbacks do. I mean, but that is a point that we see with a lot of young quarterbacks is they really, you know, it's two options essentially. And a lot of times it's primary receiver and then back out of the backfield and they, they're yeah. not really uh, seeing the rest of it. Do you, so you seem, you think that he's improving in that manner as well, that he's seeing the field well for his checkdowns? Uh, yeah, I think he is. I, like I said, I mean, he just misses on the two that we, we're going to present here. Mm. But I think that he is, and a lot of that has to do with not even getting to that progression Okay. And I got a guy open. I'm just going to hit him. But it's like, well, you had this guy open. Okay. Well, that's a film study thing later. But you never want to be known in a quarterback room as check down Charlie. So, <laughs> throw the ball on the field. Plus, it's, all about, it's all about W's. It's all matters. Yeah. Just about W's. That's all that, yeah. that's all that matters. So if we have that other clip, um, 
uh, we it's basically the same concept. Um, it's the dagger concept again in, in a pretty critical moment. I believe it's a third down again. Um, they're, the Cardinals are playing what we call a cover two um, man under. So in cover two, some people call it cover five. Two man under is essentially everybody below the safeties are playing in man. So man across the board, it looks like like cover one, cover zero, same thing. Mm-hmm. You still have a two high structure. So the two high look is each safety basically has a half. You have half the field. I have half the field. And then we're going to allow the guys to play man coverage underneath of it. Now the DBs are going to play what we call trail technique. This is what I learned from our buddy Fabian Washington, who's been on the show as well. You're basically going to stay in the back hip pocket of the receiver. Um, You can be a little bit more aggressive. You can try and undercut routes. You're not worried about getting beat deep primarily because you have help over the top. So mm-hmm. that makes you more aggressive on the more intermediate and the in, the in-cut routes here. So now what you're going to get is same concept. So it's a three-by-one set. So three receivers to the field, one to the boundary. Cardinals, like I said, are going to cover two men under. You're going to get a drag route from the number one receiver from the backside. So the single side receiver is going to run a what we call just a drag route, about four to six yards coming all the way across. The field, you're also going to get the same thing where you're going to get the vertical route and then the dig route that cuts right underneath of it. So if you could roll it for me. So Beasley is going to run the dig. Stephon Diggs is going to run the dig route. Outside, you get a vertical takeoff that's more to just occupy a safety. Okay. So if you could roll it back just a little bit more. Oh, I can see his back. Good Lord. Yeah. He had room to build. Now this again what I'm talking about is Allen just not getting to that progression because right. he wants what he sees with the dig route. The linebacker is supposed to be in man coverage on the running back. He runs with the drag route. He busts the coverage, but he gets a man beater essentially. I mean, it's, it's a cover four beater, but Beasley wins on the route and Allen basically puts that dig route right on his chest. Could he have gotten more on a check down? Sure. Mm. He still completed a, whatever it was, a 20-yard dig route ball. It was pretty impressive. He puts it on the numbers, very catchable ball, and we're getting a first down. People are, well, you want a, you don't want a touchdown? You want a first down? I want completions. Yeah, so and, and he's I'm, not and even I'm, getting to that progression to begin with. So yeah. exactly. football and, Twitter can take it, just relax. Right, and also get the ball out of your hand. I mean, you tell young quarterback, get the ball out of your hand and get it into a playmaker's hand. So, yeah, that that's that's just such interesting stuff. I, Good yeah, I, I get a kick out of football Twitter when they expect young quarterbacks in their third year to make Tom Brady-like plays because Tom Brady and Mahomes and all – well, I mean, Mahomes is a different category. But you get all these veteran guys that are making all these really savvy plays, and then they expect that out of, like, Sam Darnold. Like, you can't expect that. It's a growth and progression. And people getting the all 22, the general public, is like the worst thing ever. Well, well, you know what's amazing is that this just shows how much room the Buffalo Bills have to grow. This is them being this successful with missing wide open guys because Mm -hmm. Allen hasn't gotten to that in his progressions. But the mm-hmm. fact when, when he gets more savvy, when he gets more facile at all of this, I mean, they are on the road to being a very scary offensive yep. team and a matchup nightmare for most defenses. It's yep. it's it's a. Yes, it is a bit of an overreaction, 
for the way they shredded the 49ers defense, but it is pretty impressive. And when you think about that, they're one, you know, miracle pass away from being 10 and two, this is a threat in the AFC. I would think yeah. this is that they're a threat to go deep in the playoffs. I would think they're a legit threat, especially if they get a home game too. And they got to, and somebody has to come up and play Buffalo in the cold weather. Um, that could be a problem for some people. And that, even like the personnel that they've gathered, Remember I was saying that they're doing some of the New England old school type concepts with the digs and the crossers. You even look at their personnel, these smaller twitchy guys, guys with speed that can run away from people, the Stefan Diggs, the Cole Beasley. And now, I mean, he's an over the top guy out of UCF and Gabe Davis. He's only a rookie. Um, yeah. And he's got, he's got some really nice big play potential as well. So they have some weapons. Um, they don't have that elite tight end. They actually play a lot more 10 personnel, meaning four receivers, no tight ends. Um, then I think only to Arizona. I think Arizona runs it the most. Buffalo might run it the second most. Man, it's just, it, yeah, it's scary. And it's also, you know, you have to point out, and you've already said it, Derek, they've given Josh Allen the right tools to succeed. Mm-hmm. I, I, You know, you think if, if, if Beasley and Diggs had gone to New England, Tom Brady would still be there, and they'd probably be your number one seed in the AFC because, you know, you, you just d- didn't have those set pieces. So this is – I, I can do this for hours, actually. Can we just do film session with Derek, like a three-hour film session and and talk about this? Because, honestly, you know, yeah. my high school plays were like 98, 326, pen, backside, fly, and it was like three things you had to remember. Uh, for, well, I was a wide receiver. You had to remember one thing, whatever pattern you were running. It just gets interesting and good. I also think it's great to point out to people that, to your point, Derek, is that it's a very complicated game on the NFL level. And even though it looks a lot like what you see on the college level and what you might see in some, you know, there's some great high school programs here in Central Florida, as you know, and in the state of Florida, but it is an altogether different game on the NFL level. And the things that guys have to learn, the best of the best, um, it takes them a long time. Hey, Derek, I have a question for you, buddy. (laughs) I I have a question about uh, coaching in in, with, with what John just said about how complicated schemes are. Well, they're getting, they're complicated in college as well. And you know this, and you're a line coach and you've got to coach these, these kids up who, you know, are it's required if you're an offensive lineman to be pretty smart, to, to know what's happening all over the place and to understand schemes and to understand adjustments and to understand defensive sets. And, um, so there's a lot of cerebral work that has to go in. And yet at the same time, it's football. At the <laughs> same time, you got to out hit the man in front of you. So yep. in terms of a coach, what's the percentage of like, you know, inspiring these guys to just kill who's in front of them and also inspiring them to study and really understand the chess match going out there? Well, I have to, if I have to motivate you, I'll fire you. <laughs> motivated by that alone to go out there and go play football. Yeah. Um, it also helps that I'm working with some of the smartest kids in the country that, not, hell, they're all smarter than me. I mean, they're all electrical engineers, cyber communication, cyber, probably hacked by computer, except they find nothing but film. Um, so it, yeah, it, you're it, safe, it, man. You are safe. There's no it, doubt about it. Is a, it is a blessing to work with such highly intelligent people. Um, people that will we don't play a brick wall, but they'll run through one for you if we, <laughs> if we ever had to. But um, it, if you tell them whatever, hey, well, I need you to do this, 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 they'll do it. 
Um, but there is still a little bit of the uh, the military in them where it is a no outside the box thinking sometimes. So you mm. kind of have to have a little bit of the creativity uh, for it. Um, so it really, I mean, football is 90% mental assignment, alignment, football. Um, everything else is, you know, go out, hit and do all those things. Great. But if you don't know what you're doing on a, on a day-to-day basis, you're a play-to-play basis, you're going to be in a lot of trouble, um, at least for – for me, and I try to really put the the challenge of learning new stuff and wrinkles and, and all the complicated stuff on me, and then really just trying to make it so simple for our guys that it's it's like simple math to them, um, mm. all the wrinkles and stuff. So you're really really putting the burden on, on myself and, and the coaching staff as well that it's, hey, it's our job to get these guys ready and to get the play, play uh, to decision. I'm, I'm glad you pointed out that if you have to motivate, I always say uh, professional athletes, particularly, y- you better be self-motivated because uh, there's there's no room for I need a rah-rah speech to get up for tonight's game. Just seems no. absolutely ridiculous. All right, Derek, uh, as always, thanks for bringing some class and knowledge to this shit show of a podcast that we generally uh, wow. try to do. Wow. We're going to describe the podcast as a shit show. I just, it's me. You know me. I have so little respect for anything that I would do. And I respect—I don't respect you and Jeff for working with me, I frankly. I think, I mean, you, you've, you've done something. But every, and, and, oh, truthfully, Derek, thanks so much. This was a lot of fun. And I'm sure we'll, we'll have a chance to uh, catch up with you next week because whereas last week was not a great week in the NFL, this week there are too many interesting games going on. And uh, there maybe really some are. things will and sort Johnny, themselves could- out. If I can interrupt you, I'd, I'd like to get his predictions on the two games that he broke down, Steelers, Bills, and Chiefs, Dolphins. Go ahead, <laughs> young young Abbott. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think Buffalo wins um, against Steelers, wow. um, and I think that the, the Chiefs pull. They win this, but I don't know that it's going to be as a wide margin as people think. All right, fun. And I'll throw one more out there, then, if we're going to do this. Cleveland and Baltimore? Does Baltimore about – oh, it's – you know, we, we've already buried Baltimore, but uh, let's let's not forget there's still a lot of talent on that team. I wouldn't bury Baltimore. They they've pretty much owned Cleveland. I know that that's a big difference from week one to whatever it is week fourteen now, but um, they they've had their number the past couple meets. So I, I would go with Baltimore. All right. Wow. Very very nice. That's really good football this weekend. Derek Abbott, thanks so much, and we'll talk to you down the line, man. Thanks, guys. Awesome. All right. Now back to the shit show. Uh, that's just, uh, I mean, we're, we're about to, we're about to do our hundredth episode in, in, yeah. you know, we're at 97 yeah. and you have yet to call the podcast a shit show. So on episode <laughs> wow. 97, I have, I just haven't done the, it. The, the real the feelings about the show finally have come out for everyone to hear. It's okay. You know, I, I, I sat and watched the Ravens play it was a Tuesday and I, I, I felt early on in, uh, Lamar, Alexander's career that they were going to figure him out. Jackson. Lamar Alexander. Is there a guy who's been misnomered more on this show than Lamar Jackson? I know. What is it about? It's hard to remember Lamar Jackson. You know, anyway, what I, what I noticed is I always thought they were going to figure that kind of quarterback. Once he gets figured out, they don't seem to be able to adjust. But watching that game, I think he's starting to figure out how to adjust to how defensive coordinators have adjusted to him 
And I yeah. think that Baltimore, I think the wheels are going to come back on for Baltimore, if not at some point this season, but definitely in the future. I also think the coaching is caught up. I think the offensive coordinator there, and I think the coaching has has realized that, you, to your point, Jeff, you guys that talented as an athlete, because he is a, he's a Michael Vick-like freak as an athlete in that respect. Um, I, I think the coaches relied on that athleticism and the fact that uh, defenses hadn't caught up, and I think they're catching up. John Harbaugh is good. He's the best coach in his family. I don't think there's any doubt about that, mm. and that says a lot. Um, but they are, yeah. I, I I would be loath to bury them, frankly. I, um, I saw I saw a few times where he would put would put the ball down and go, and the defense would converge on him. But there were other times when he would keep looking downfield. He would pump fake and make those guys stay back just in case, and he would get he would gain a few more yards from just making that kind of uh, deception. And I thought that was, I thought that's what, that's what it's going to take for him to continue to have great success in the NFL. And he had improved his accuracy and that's dropped off a little bit, I think as the defense have figured him out. But to your point, yeah, I I think they're, uh, I I would not be very, I wouldn't be surprised if they beat Cleveland this weekend. That is an interesting football game. All right, let's uh, cover a couple other things I wanted to cover really, really quickly, Mark. And I want to jump to baseball just for a moment because uh, the Philadelphia Phillies, who I think we would all agree have been a, a, a large disappointment for a long time for their fan base. And, you know, they bring over Bryce Harper and that's as a Nationals fan. Thank you very much. Addition by subtraction for the Nats. Um, They have, you know, JT Real Muto, maybe the best catcher in baseball at this point in time. There's some talent, but they have consistently underachieved. 2020, I mean, I guess we really have to sort of throw it out a little bit because that was as odd a baseball season as we'll ever see. Dombrowski is a really, really good baseball guy. Uh, The Marlins, the Tigers, started with the White Sox in the late 70s, made them a better team. Boston, certainly the Red Sox. But what he really is is a guy who goes out and spends a lot of money and puts together a team via generally free agency. They do not have a good uh, farm system right now. They are considered to have one of the poorer farm systems, more barren farm systems in Major League Baseball. Um, and their owner has, Bryce Harper notwithstanding, not been somebody who spends a lot of money. Is this a good fit in your estimation? I, anybody would hire Dave Dombrowski. But do, it, do you see it as a good fit? I, I, I think any time you bring in a general manager – who is one of, I don't know, four or five general managers who have won a World Series with two different teams, it's probably a good idea. Now, yes, he brought in free agents for the 18 uh, Red Sox team. That was a juggernaut. He obviously bought the entire team in 1997 for the Florida Marlins. Marlins. Yeah. We, we all we all know this. Uh, but he also was a general manager of the Tigers, who were pathetic. He mm-hmm. gets in there and... Uh, you know, he, get, he gets Jim Leland in there, and they go mm-hmm. to two World Series, for crying yeah. out loud. He he uh, was the general manager of the White Sox before you could sort of buy your teams. And he got Tony La Russa in there, and they and they went to the postseason. And they hadn't mm-hmm. sniffed the postseason since He's had success everywhere. He has had success everywhere. And he's had success in different ways, is what my point is. He's not okay. just a guy to grab a bunch of free agents. He's a guy to build the team. If you, you know, if it, if if the ownership for the Florida Marlins says throw money at this, let's see. We, you know, we're an expansion team. We haven't really had a time time to do much. Let's see what you can do. He did that. If you know, here's the Red Sox. We just need one more piece. 
You know, we just need one into you know, this, that, or the other, or like two or three. You know, that's what he did. But if you're the Tigers, uh, just a talk about Ground a shit show. Ground talk about a shit show. Yeah. By within four years, they were in the World Series. Yeah. And the White Sox the same way. The Expos, he did the same thing too. So I don't know how you can go wrong with a guy that's had that much success in in different, not only in different organizations and won two World Series with two different ones, but I believe he has proven to, that he can do it in whatever way the organization needs. To our point earlier, he's 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 not <laughs> agile. Yeah, he's not Bill Walsh who has one way of doing it. I think he's shown he'll see what the organization needs. Philadelphia Phillies, you know, they probably need him to to start working the farm system and maybe getting some better man management in there in terms of uh in terms of the the, the field general, the the actual manager. And then he'll probably do some, you know, he'll do some things with with free agents as well. I mean, you have to remember, John, that the Philadelphia Phillies have been pretty close the last three years. You know, Gabe, remember Gabe Kapler, you know, started out so strong and they were, they were very, yeah. very good for, I don't know, all the way through August. And so yeah. maybe it is only a couple of pieces. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking they can't, I'm thinking it's a, I don't know how they're going to go wrong with this guy in there. He's only 64. He's not like an old, old guy. Right. And, um, you know, of course, that sounds like a normal age to me right now. 64. Right. Yes. right. So, sounds uh, very old to me. And I yeah. can't yeah. imagine yeah. making it there, to be honest. And, and, right. I, and maybe I won't. Uh, well, I just, you know, I just wonder because it, you I like get the higher, in other words. You're right. You're, well, I think anyone would like the hire, but I mean, you do have to look at it and look at the fit. And then I just look at the division they're in and what kind of patience they're going to have, because Atlanta is clearly better than they are more talented, I think, top to bottom. I think Washington is probably more talented top to bottom. And I think you could argue, you know, the the our, our, our pet Marlin team, which we all fell in love with because we thought they were going to, you know, be lucky to win a game this year. And that, that turned into so. You know, outside of the Mets, uh, that's kind of you know you're 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 a bit of a, a cellar dweller there. Uh, and uh, they finished, I think, third and fourth the last two years in in the division. Uh, I, I think I agree. I think it's a good hire. But what everybody is talking about, and what I remembered about Dombrowski was being given you know the money and not having to build the organization. And I just I I worry. I I, I would have to go back and look at what the Marlins farm system was what Detroit's was. And it just worries me that, you know, somebody said that they have the third worst farm system and there's a, I, a metric for that in uh, baseball. The, the uh, Justin Verlander was in the Detroit farm system. Was he not? Yeah. Uh, he, did Portello he, that, as well. That's a good question. Sure, sure. I know they got from the diamondbacks, but I think those other two were, were homegrown. Yeah. Well, so they might've been homegrown, but I don't, I, I think they may, he, they may not have been there when he got there. Oh, you know okay. I mean? He 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 brought them in. He brought them in, if if I'm not mistaken. Uh, he got there in 02, and Verlander, you know, made an appearance in the 06 uh, World Series, but Verlander became Verlander post that. So we'll see mm -hmm. if he was in the. You know, we can we can get to that right now, and we'll uh, well, we'll check he, that out. While, while while you're doing that, I'll say this: the thing with the Phillies is that they need to maybe focus a little bit less on offense and uh, start looking at pitching because that has been their downfall. Oh, their bullpen is horrible. Their, their starters is terrible. Their, their, their starters, you know, I, I get a lot of flack for saying this, but they're, they're top to bottom. They're not very good. Even at the top of their rotation, I don't think they're, they're good. I think they're, they're was, was Velasquez their, their ace this year. 
the one or two. I mean, yeah, maybe. He, I feel like he's a three or four on on teams with good staffs. Yeah, yeah, and and then that bullpen. I mean, their ERA. You know, they have like a, I think they had something like a seven ERA with uh, after the sixth inning. With yeah. I mean, they just they were really bad statistically. It's, and it's funny you say that because that's what the Nationals were in 2019, and they won a World Series with a good starting staff and a horrendous yeah. bullpen. Although guys came through, obviously, for them to win that World Series, but. Right. The the they never had a real back of the rotation closer. They never right. never. I'm sorry, a back end closer. They they had guys that had had some success as closers, but not really that shutdown guy. And the bullpen was their their long relief was terrible. So I think that that the first thing he's going to have to do is decide to go out and spend some money on some pitching. And if the ownership isn't willing to do that, then it's a horrible fit. And who's available? That's the thing. I mean, well, you know, who's available when, you know, and, now, and again, nobody, but next year there's a lot of great pitchers available yeah. in free agency. Yeah. And I think, I think he's going to have to move quickly. Cause again, I think that's a division where you have, uh, I think you have good front offices in uh, Washington, Miami, and um, obviously Atlanta uh, and to catch up. But to your point, that Washington team did have good starting pitching. And to your additional point, Pittsburgh, excuse me, Philadelphia doesn't have that either. Yep. Now, why do we feel this has to be a uh, an immediate turnaround? Because that's not because normally his mo. They don't. It doesn't have to be immediate, but it has to be short term because they have great young talent offensively that is going. They're going to miss a window if they don't bring him in soon. I mean, Bryce Harper is twenty seven now. So in three years, he'll be 30. He'll be at the end of his career. It's crazy, isn't it? Seems like he's been in the leagues since like, you know. But I think well, in Major League Baseball, 30-31 is your peak in Major League Baseball. Yeah. That's, when, that's when between 29 and 31, historically, is when players have their best seasons offensively. I'm not sure about pitchers. Uh, they, by the way, Verlander was drafted in 04, two years into his uh, so reign. So he drafted Verlander? He yeah. drafted Verlander, but he also hired Alan Trammell and they had their worst years, his first three years in the league there before he hired Jim Leland. Yeah. But it, maybe he invented tanking because he got he had the second pick in the in the draft, and he got Verlander in 04. By 06, he by 05 he was he was on the team. By oh, 06, I, I, it, it probably had more to do with the guy. You couldn't bring a Leland in to to coach a bunch of kids. That he needed that former player, younger coach, manager to manage those younger kids. And then when those kids were coming into their own bring in the seasoned veteran to, to take you over the top. I also yeah, think monetarily speaking, uh, you know, why Jim Leland was going to cost you a lot more than Alan Trammell in his first managing job. So why not, you know, you're not going to drop the money on the big manager. If you're, if you're still trying to sort out your talent and Mark to answer your question, what uh, Jeff said, I agree with that with the young talent, but I also just think it's because there are so many teams ahead of them in that division that uh, in theory have better organizations right now. And I think, you know, it, it, people's, attention spans are so much shorter now and get shorter year in and year out. And they're going to have to show a level of success. I think uh, three years in, you know, they can't still be the fourth most talented and best team in that division. I think that, that would, uh, that would doom him. Yeah. And, and as a guy who's not a fan of Philadelphia, the Phillies, I, I doom him all. Yeah. Doom him. That's great. I'm good. For yeah. Him. No, we'll see. We'll see what happens. He did bring in uh, his share of free agents with, with the Tigers too, but it was a combination of yeah. building the team from within, and he, then he, then when when they were ready, to Jeff's point, they go from seventy one wins and Trammell's last year to ninety six, and they get to the World Series in Leland's first year, 
Mm. Yeah, but they also brought in Maglio Ordonez that year, you know, from the White Sox. Did they already have Victor Martinez and and no, uh, they didn't have Rodolfo those guys? No. Nope. That was later. That was uh their 2012 World Series is when they had, you know, Prince Fielder as well. And, and that, yep. that was a loaded team. Scherzer in that one, you know, they were loaded by then. And was yes. Dombrowski involved with the, uh, getting Cabrera into – did he draft him when he was back with them? Because he came in with the Marlins, right? He was uh, drafted by the Marlins. And the, timelines, the timelines make sense because he so, was young when he was playing for that Marlins World Series team. Well, maybe that's you know maybe that's what we're missing about him. Maybe he is better at putting a a, a, a farm system together because, you know, if we – and Mark and I are big fans of the, the idea that – you can go out and maybe rent yourself a championship, but if you want sustained success, you you better have a good uh, farm system. If you don't, you will be the New York Yankees of the 1980s. Which I get a kick out. I get a kick out of farm system though, because I you know I pay a lot of attention to my particular mm-hmm. club, and farm system means you got to have re- five extremely good prospects in your mm-hmm. farm system at all time, mm-hmm. and the rest the rest is just fluff. And you luck out every once in a while, a guy that you weren't like Juan Soto. Never heard of him. Shows mm-hmm. up. He's probably the best hitter in baseball at this point. Mm-hmm. But you you don't know that guy. But but you have to have five good prospects, and, and that's you have to be able to develop. You have to be able to develop talent, and that's what Atlanta really, really has did well. They do it now as well. But back through that Atlanta run, and they they bring people in. Obviously, they brought guys in, but they were able to develop their talent. And there yeah. are you know that's there are farm systems that can draft <laughs> well but not develop their talent. Forty minor league teams have been. Uh, eliminated uh it so that that may be more difficult than it was in in the past as well yeah, yeah. They, they brought in cabrera uh in 08 but remember cabrera was 20 to you guys point in 19 in uh in 03 in mm-hmm. the world the second world series and dombrowski left in 01 so he he uh drafted cabrera as well so and and it's the other thing too is that he brings in free agents and others that have worked with him before. So so we'll see if the magic continues with this guy. Remember, he won a World Series two years ago. So yeah. uh, And was fired the next year, which is just, right? One in 2018, well, got fired think, after the 2019 think, season. I think the Red Sox were like, uh, we're all good with what you've done here. We're definitely not going to pay all these guys. We're going to jettison most of them. So uh, it's, see you later. Because he brought in... Uh, he brought in David Price, the other pitcher. What's killing me? I can't remember his name from Cleveland. Who, or maybe it was the White Sox. He was from the White Sox, mm-hmm. who was a reliever, and then all of a sudden a Cy Young. So he brought in two Cy Young award winners. Mm-hmm. They had rookie bets, and uh, they they had kids that were there, and they were like, "It's time to move on from this team." So they moved on from him too, which I, could be good for the Phillies. I hope not. Yeah. I hope it's well, his worst ever job he's ever done he, with a team. He drafted Miguel Cabrera and he drafted Justin Verlander. He drafted Cabrera in in 99. He drafted, you know, so he drafted two Hall of Famers. And that's just uh, that's just with a cursory Googling of what this has been like the last three minutes. So did he bring his scouts with him? Did he bring his scouts with him is the question. I think it's a good hire. I don't think he's, you know, past his prime necessarily. And I have a soft spot. I'm the only one on this show that has a soft spot for Philadelphia in any way, shape, no, or form. You guys hated me for picking the Flyers to root for during the postseason. And uh, still do, I, by the way, I still hate you. You'll never get past that one. You will be hated by me for the rest of eternity. For for, for the Flyers? For loving yeah, it's on the Flyers? That's a lake of fire moment for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The only so, the only Philly team I could I could let you have would be the 76ers because you know Dr. J was such a 
was Michael Jordan before I was a before Michael Jordan and, and, and Moses I, was such a great player too. And and, and Andrew Tony and Mo Cheeks, the Cunningham. That was a fun. That was a fun team. So I could get. I really paid any attention to them. Why would you? Frankly, a couple of players notwithstanding, not a lot of reason to watch 76ers yeah. games. But you I can't talk about not being able to be develop good, your talent. No, Boy, I agree, I, but I think they're gonna. I think Doc Rivers will will bring them. You know. Uh, to probably oh, the king of clam is going to talk about Doc Rivers. No, no, Doc Rivers will not win a championship with Philadelphia. Oh, good, yeah. But but he will he will have them achieve. He he will turn them around from being the under the fabulously famous, probably the most underachieving team in all of sports right now. They will they will achieve to the level of their talent. They won't go past it. Uh, and they won't. They they may get to the finals. They may get to the uh, Eastern Conference finals. But they're definitely going to get to the semis. They're going to finally win a playoff series, you know, and look yeah, good. Brooklyn and Celtic. Well, you can. You might as well just air mail them the the Eastern Conference championship. Possibly, but you got to play the games. Yeah. yeah, they're going to be head and shoulders better than anybody else on paper. Well, hopefully, I'll be seeing and, them from the. But table. it's going to be a funky season too because of how short the off season was. So there's going to be a lot of. You know, there's going to be a lot of interesting developments that normally wouldn't happen in a normal year this year. Oh, so they're not in the bubble, and they're not going to be in a bubble. Yeah, no. And we're seeing with all sports to travel, no matter how safe you are, there are going to be issues. I mean, I you should see the 11 pages of COVID protocol that I got sent about uh, about doing those games. So they're going to they're going to try, but you know, you are going to deal with shorter seasons, so maybe not so many injuries. Um, but this will probably uh, affect the balance a lot. It's going to be an interesting season. One more thing I want to talk about. I know we're running late and we want to get out of here, but uh, the Big Ten's decision to uh, allow Ohio State to play for the Big Ten championship against Northwestern, even though they hadn't played the requisite number of games, which was supposed to be six. They only got five in. Where do you land on that decision? Um, And... uh, are they a national championship caliber team? I think they are. I'll tell you mine. I think they are, and I don't think the Big Ten had a choice, frankly. No, I agree wholeheartedly. That's that's the obvious call in my mind. Is what would have been I silly think. if they hadn't. No, I I, I, I I think you're absolutely right, and if they destroy Northwestern, which I anticipate they will, they'll probably yeah. make it in. And why in this year would we think that the Big Ten would stick to anything that they said? Right. Right. It's just, again, with them, if they, if they, you know, it's, it's funny because their decision-making and I can understand it. And, you know, I'm only criticizing people on their COVID decisions so much sports and stuff, because it's, it's just a difficult landscape, but they took that wait and see attitude. They were like, well, we want to see, you know, we're not going to, we're, we're going to cancel the season, but then we'll wait and see what happens. Well, that was, turns out they should have just started the season. They could have wrapped it up playing probably eight or nine games each team, but yeah, I don't think they really had a choice either because it, it, it the the conference would have lost a crap load of money, frankly, because what, Northwestern isn't going to get to the championship. But once again, why say you got to play more than five games if you want to play for our championship? Uh, yeah, why I just think that? they had to. I just think they had to make up a rule. I think they, you know, I think uh, I wasn't in all those meetings. Like I said, CEOs, um, commissioners, and stuff—they're earning their paycheck this year because it, it's just yeah. a difficult. It's a difficult job. But uh, the Big Ten gets a team into that playoff, and it's probably you know what, how many million dollar payoff for yeah. every they're, team? They're not going to make. The, yeah, that decision was already made. It, yeah, it, it, it was an obvious thing to do, and it, it's the right thing to do. Frankly, you know, it's okay to change your mind. 
You yeah, know? it would have been more fun if they would have done that Texas A&M game. I would have yes. preferred that. Stuck with their guns, played their championship the way they said they were going to do it, but let Ohio State go out and play Texas A&M. Yeah, and no, nobody, nobody. I don't think anybody would have argued with it, to be honest. Well, and I'm I, not I, sure the Big Ten prohibited the Ohio State from doing it. Ohio State just didn't want to do it. Yep. And I'm not sure Texas A&M wanted to do it. I mean, and, and there wasn't enough. There wasn't enough motivation from both sides. I don't think the Big Ten interfered with any of that. I, I think Texas A&M me. really would have wanted to do it. Oh, I yeah. think I think Texas A&M is in for sure because that gives them the chance that they don't. Yeah, have. I think that just elevates their opportunity to get into the the championship. Should there be an upset somewhere, and 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 I'm, I'm going to say this, I, and because I, I'm going to get in trouble for my friend David Lowe went to Northwestern. I don't think Northwestern would have gotten into the championship if they won. I don't think they could win a championship, but I do believe that defensively they're going to be a tough out for Ohio state. I think Ohio state would win that game, but uh, I think that um, I don't Northwestern doesn't have the offense that Indiana had to give them all that trouble. Um, But defensively they're better and more solid. So I don't think you're going to see a 45 point output for Ohio state. I think it's going to be, I think it'd be a closer game than that. Frankly, I really do. Well, they might they may score thirty two or something like that as opposed to forty five, and 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 Northwestern might score ten. You know, I, I think it's going to be a blowout. All right. Well, there you go. I think Ohio State is a deserving. In other words, I do think they are a national championship competing team. I really do, at least based on the five games I've seen this year. Like I told you, that Indiana game, it never felt like they were in trouble. The okay, do me a favor game. then. Like, do me a favor. Not record. Not anything other than how good you think they are. Alabama, Clemson, Notre Dame, Ohio State, probably going to be your top four. Rank them if you have to. I would do Alabama, and and they would, and Alabama would be a a, a number one, and then a and then a, a distant second. To tell you the truth, I think Alabama is heads and tails above everyone this year. I, see I would I would put Ohio State, and then Clemson, and then Notre Dame. Okay. It's funny because I think Notre Dame has proven that they are a better Notre Dame team than Notre Dame teams have been in the past. I agree with that. They have. They have. They they deserve to be number four. You know, where then the ones in the past that have made the playoffs did not deserve to be in the playoffs. Clearly, I think this team deserves to be in the playoffs, but they're not better than Alabama, Ohio State, or Clemson in my mind. I'm yeah. excited about these games, <clears throat> which is strange because I haven't felt that way in a while. Yeah, no, it, 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 it's going to be it's going to be interesting and, and should play out according to Hoyle. If it's like every other sport this year, which means Alabama is going to win the thing because the most talented or the most consistently good teams have been the ones that as much as we've enjoyed those upset weeks, we haven't uh, we haven't seen a lot of that. So everybody get ready for Kansas City. That's why, and that's why I think the Chiefs are going to repeat. Yeah, the Chief, Chiefs and, his, and, and the Saints as of right now. Yeah. That's 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 your Super Bowl. All right. Anything else before we get out if, of here? Boys? If I'm not mistaken, the if I'm not mistaken, I think the Saints have the number one defense either in points allowed or in yards allowed, and mm. that's a scary thought. And that's why Taysom Hill has been able to you know keep everything rolling while Drew Brees uh, you know recovers from his 87 uh, broken ribs. All right, uh, Lenny Rowe, our uh, consistent uh, listener and good friend, has them ranked: Notre Dame, Alabama, Clemson. And Ohio State. And I think this proves one thing that since he's retired, Lenny hasn't stopped drinking. I agree with Lenny. There's no way that Notre Dame team is better. I that's what I thought too until they no played chance. Clemson. I mean, it's crazy. They played, I, without, they played Clemson without the future biggest bust in the NFL, who's a great college quarterback. I th- I, I think they lose that game if he's well, playing. they're gonna play again, right? Yeah, well, ACC yeah. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, I, yeah. I'm excited to see if if uh, will you change your mind if they beat uh, Clemson with that I will. quarterback? I will. I might, I, put I'll put him. I'll put him second. I'll put him second. Well, yeah. we might get to see them play Alabama in the championship, which That'd would be, be fantastic. I, it would be a bummer if they were the first matchup. I I think. Uh, I, well, I think it, it's go if they beat Clemson in the a uh, in the ACC championship. Which I don't. I don't think is going to happen. No, but if they do, then they will be the number two seed. There's no doubt about that. I agree with that. If they lose, they'll be third or fourth. Um, Yeah. Probably third. Well, if they beat Clemson, you think Clemson's in anyway? They beat them in the ACC championship? No. If Clemson has two losses, they're out. I was going to say, there's a possibility that they could play a third time in in a bowl game if that happened. Yeah, it, no, I, I think uh, if if they were to beat Clemson, then I think that's when you look at Texas A&M, you look at what Florida and does against Alabama in the SEC yep. championship game. If Northwestern upset Ohio State, that you know they'd only have one Cincinnati. loss. Cincinnati might have a shot. Their game postponed again this week, though, and Lord, I think Cincinnati, in fact, their game was postponed, and I believe, if Cincinnati. I'm not <clears throat> Yeah, and they were playing a ranked team. It's Tulsa was ranked twenty fourth, but that would have given them another quality win. But that one, that one's been canceled along with Texas and Kansas, Indiana and Purdue canceled. Oklahoma, West Virginia, and sadly for the first time in over hundred years, Michigan, Ohio State. So it's Jim Harbaugh's most successful season against the Buckeyes. It is so good for him. He did not lose in twenty twenty against the Buckeyes. Congratulations to Jim Harbaugh well, and go Navy Harbaugh. beat Army. That's the last thing that I have to say for Mark Ferreira. Hang on. Jeff- hang on. Sorry. Oh. Sorry. Locks and shocks. Yes. Uh, yeah. I just thought of it while I was after I was going to try to get out early. All right, Mark, go ahead. Give me your locks and shocks. My shock is uh, your Washington football team beating my San Francisco 49ers. That's inexplicably, the Niners are favored. I don't get it. I really don't. You guys are on. You guys are on a serious roll. And literally ever since this entire century, I believe I've looked it up. Yeah, it is. Actually, ever since 1999, every time the Redskins have made the playoffs, and I think it's three times, maybe four, Washington. they have been like three and six, two and five. They've they've started the season highly mediocre, even bad, and gone on a serious run. The last time they made the playoffs in 2012, they were three and six and won the last seven games. All right. And the and the times before that, the two times that Joe Gibbs coached him into the playoffs, same way. They had a great second half or a great last quarter of the season. And that's what's happening with the Washington football team right now. I think it's going to continue. So that's my shock. The 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 uh the team formerly known as the Skins uh will beat the San Francisco 49ers. And my lock, uh the aforementioned New Orleans Saints. They are going to cover You don't believe in Jalen Hurts? No. They're going to cover it. What is it? Seven and a half against uh, uh, the Eagles? Six, it's dropped to six and a half. Yeah, they're going to cover that easily because that defense is coming on. That defense has allowed eight points a game the last four games. Mm. It's just it's so interesting what we don't talk mm. about until yeah. something happens. You yeah. know what I mean? We haven't talked about the Buffalo offense, really. Maybe we've talked about Josh Allen. We've talked about Stephon Diggs, who's had a very a big bit. year. Yeah, but in terms bit. of their offensive schemes, you know, we – Certain certain topics just don't boil up to the surface. I think yeah. New Orleans is going to shut Philly down pretty hard. Well, I think yeah, the reality of New Orleans is that they are a good team regardless of the quarterback, and that has been proven now. I mean, he's not the only guy that they have in there. 
Oh, well, no, the they had they success have, with Teddy yeah. Bridgewater. They had success with Teddy yeah. Bridgewater as yeah. well. That's a they very did. good football team. That is a very you good football team. You have Kamara and Michael Thomas on your yeah. team. You're, you're right. going to do, do very well. Yep. That's exactly right. Ab- absolutely. And Taysom Hill has been there. He knows the offense. And uh, so I don't know if he's the long-term solution there. But, you know, they, everybody's saying that it wasn't just because he knew the offense that he was better than Jameis Winston. It was in practice running running that team. So there you go. All right. Uh, my lock is Tennessee and Jacksonville. And that's seven and a half points. But I, I really still believe that Tennessee is a very good football team. And I think they could, they could destroy Jacksonville, who uh, they're, uh, you know, desperately hoping that the Jets win a couple of games. Um, and my shock is actually, um, boy, I've gone back and forth between a couple of them because the Baltimore and Cleveland one struck me um, uh, because Cle- at home, Cleveland, I think they're playing well. But um, I landed on, instead of the Baltimore-Cleveland one, I think what you're going to see is, um, I, boy, am I, am, I, am I willing to give it to, into this? Uh, yeah, I think that I think the Giants are going to beat Arizona. Wow! I, wow! All right, that's a fun game, though. I I admit that that's a fun game. The Arizona, what zero and three? The last three games, I believe they've lost three in a row. They have um, that. It, we talked about the Giants all year. They they under Joe Judge. Uh, this boy, this third wave, I guess, of uh, Belichick uh, guys are 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 doing really well. Flores and Judge. Um, defensively, they will punch you in the mouth. Arizona's a little bit of a mess. Uh, so it's only two and a half. It's not a huge upset, but, uh, I'll yeah, take that's the 49ers over the, uh, football team as well. Yeah. I'll, I'll take at home, the New York football giants. I think they're going to end up winning the NFC East and not the Washington football team. But, uh, you know, so it's interesting when we talk about this, it's the giants and the Cowboys, it's the dolphins and the chiefs, it's the Niners and the football team. <laughs> you know, there's a there's a school there. Uh, I have some friends who are like, I kind of just like going with this. I like going with the with the Washington football team. I love it personally. I think it just it just brings up, you know, it's it's modern and Victorian all at the same time. Just get rid of football, though. Just make it the Washington team. I like that. As long as they keep the numbers on the helmets, because for some reason, I'm just obsessed. I love numbers on the helmets. That's it. And I maybe it's just because. You know, I feel bad for Thurman Thomas. If he'd only had his number on his helmet, he'd have been able to find it more easily in 91. And then they would have still lost the game. But it wouldn't have been quite as embarrassing for our good friend uh, who we've interviewed many, many times yeah. in, in a job that has gone away, that has that disappeared and will never come back. <laughs> We're going to come yeah. back on Monday after uh, after a really good week of uh, football, particularly in the NFL. A lot of interesting games. We'll talk about that more and uh, whatever else happens in the world of sports and i will hope that over the weekend jeff takes the opportunity to listen to the allman brothers live at fillmore east i Four. get it <laughs> jeff taylor mark Ferrer. i'm john pelkey peace out everybody have a good weekend